Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Jim. Hi, Catherine. You're still in California? Yes, I am. And in fact, guess who I just accidentally bumped into the other day? Mm, in the Bay Area, I'm going to go with Mark Zuckerberg. Um, no. Alexis Madrigal. Oh, wow. I was on a hiking trail, you know, like huffing and puffing my way up, and he like absolutely shot by mm-hmm. running. <laughs> Small world, and this is completely unplanned. Completely unplanned. It's just, you know, the trails of the East Bay. Um, <laughs> you never know who you're going to run into. Well, he probably told you some interesting things, so... Maybe well, we actually didn't catch me talk enough, so we should actually call him because I have a lot of questions that I didn't get to ask him while he was, I mean, he was clearly like, you know, moving a lot faster. Yeah, he's like, sorry, I can't get the heart rate down. Yeah, exactly. Good so seeing we you. See you again in a few years. Um, we should call him today, but I, I have a question first um, okay. before we do, which is there was a news item last week. I heard that the CDC is telling states to prepare for a vaccine in early November. Hmm. What does that mean? Yeah, well, I, we should we should uh, talk to someone to figure that out. But I, I'm cautiously <laughs> cautiously skeptical, I guess, is mm-hmm, the term. Mm-hmm. Because I think in these next few months, you're going to see an inclination for, for the administration to kind of declare mission accomplished. Um, you know, the story of the whole response for the last eight months has been minimizing, saying it's not a big deal. We're going to get back to normal life just any minute now. Right. And it's so tempting to want to believe that, mm-hmm. that this just seems very likely. You know, this happened so many times before that I'm inclined to believe that is the case. Yeah. I mean, at this point, and this is a terrible reaction that I don't want to be having, but at this point when I hear... A vaccine is coming soon. I'm afraid, not relieved. Mm. <laughs> so that it might be coming um, too too quickly. Yeah, I mean, I thought we weren't going to get one till next year at the earliest. So, like, what happened? Right. To make it much closer than we think. Like we've talked many times about how the vaccine development process is rigorous, lengthy. All these steps. These are the reasons why we take these steps is to make sure it's safe. Like, and in fact, the reason it takes so long is why we can trust it because it's Mm -hmm. so scientifically rigorous the way we test things. And then it's like, oops, there's going to be a vaccine in a month, you know? Right. I mean, technically, we've had vaccine prototypes since April. If you wanted to spin that politically, you could say that. But that's completely different from meaning we have a safe and effective and scaled and distributed Right. Vaccine, which I don't, I have not heard right. anyone suggesting would be the case before at the very earliest. The right, spring. right. Um, so anyway, can we ask Sarah Zhang? She's been covering the vaccine development process, among many other things, very well and more closely than I have. Yes, please. Uh, hello. Hey. Hi. Hey, Sarah. So, Sarah, I heard a thing last week. CDC tells states to prepare for vaccine as early as early November. My reaction to that, for reasons I can't totally articulate, is fear. Can you explain? 
Um, well, I think maybe what you're uh, reacting to is kind of this larger thing that's happening on vaccines, right? Which is that President Trump and the Trump administration has been really forcefully and like loudly telling us about how quickly they are developing vaccines. They use the name Operation mm-hmm. Warp Speed. So I think there is a lot of just given this rhetoric about speed, right? There's a lot of people who are worried about whether this vaccine is actually going to work or not, or whether it's just going to be pushed out to the population. And then, you know, sometime later, we'll find out whether it's actually safe or effective. Obviously, I want a vaccine six months ago. Mm-hmm. Early November, like there's something else happening in early November. Indeed. <laughs> given what we've seen so far, yeah. just the fact that this was sort of like publicly announced States, get ready for early November. How am I supposed to interpret that? I think on one hand, you can see this as like possibly an agency that is just trying to get everyone ready, even if they're vaccinated. Get everybody ready. Yeah. Get your get your fridges cold. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things is that these leading vaccine candidates have to like be like at ultra cold storage. So like this is just mm-hmm. like logistics that need to be figured out. And we want to do that mm-hmm. before a vaccine is available rather than once we're trying to get, actually give out vaccines. So mm-hmm. I think like that in itself is like not necessarily nefarious because we do want states to start getting ready before a vaccine is actually available. The limiting factor is really just going to be when the data is available. And that takes time, uh, mostly because the human trials have only started, what, like earlier this summer. And you need time to first like recruit all these people. Uh, you also have to wait for them to actually get COVID, right? That means they have to like go outside, go to the communities, go shopping, whatever. And the last factor in like how long this will take is just how effective the vaccine itself is. So if a vaccine is super, super effective, like if it's 100% effective, it will kind of be pretty obvious right away that no one who got the vaccine gets COVID. But if it's like right. 50% effective, which is you know really plausible, it will just take longer for us to see that effect. So I right. think the November deadline is just like if everything goes perfectly and this vaccine is very effective, we'll see some like the first data. But it's not going to be like widely available to, in like no way. Got right. it, got it, got it. Where does the vaccine actually stand right now? I think maybe one way to think about it is that there isn't one vaccine. In fact, there are like dozens of vaccines that people are trying to develop. Right. So, and some of them like hook on to the bobble and the other ones like take the bobble off of the virus and the other ones like... Just say yes. But they all have different <laughs> mechanisms or whatever, right? Yes, yes. They all work a little bit differently. Um, the whole idea you know the bobbles like, on the virus. Yeah, the bobble. Yeah, the, the pretty so They the have little pom-poms on the end. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Those red pom-poms you keep seeing in pictures. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are lots and lots of different types of vaccines. And it could be that the first vaccines we have are not the best vaccines. Or it could be that certain vaccines will work better in children. Certain ones will work better in elderly. But certain ones will work better for whatever reason. So we kind of want like all these different vaccine strategies. The ones that are being promised in early November, what, what does that mean? Yeah, um, yeah. Is that going to be like, okay, we actually went through the whole process here, or are they going to be experimental emergency authorization? Mm -hmm. So I think if everything goes perfectly, it's plausible that we could have data that shows like one of these vaccines is safe and effective by, say, November. But that that like assumes like everything happens perfectly. And that's also data. Does that mean we would have the actual vaccine ready? Like, could I go to CVS and get it? (laughs) You could not. Uh, what could happen is that there may be like a small number of doses available to 
like a high risk population, say health workers. So like every, uh-huh. if everything goes perfectly and this vaccine is effective, a small number may be available to a very select group of people, but that will not be you and me and you will not be able to get CVS. So symbolically it might be important, but practically it's not going to change your life at all. And so for me, it would still be like March next year when I could get it or later. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Is that Who right? Knows? Yeah, exactly. Manufacturing millions of doses is just really difficult. And the leading vaccine candidates right now are using technology that we've never used in a vaccine before. So it's just like a lot of new things going on at scale. So a lot of like hiccups can happen. Yeah. Specifically, what could still go wrong in the process from development to bringing it to mass market? The first thing is just, is this vaccine effective or not? And so usually the way vaccine research works, or like just like general biomedical research works, is that you start with like small mammals like mice or ferrets or hamsters. And then if it seems to be promising, you go to monkeys. And if it seems to be promising in monkeys, then you finally go to humans. So one of the possible bottlenecks is that the U.S. has a limited number of research monkeys. And that's because, first of all, lots and lots of people are trying to do COVID research right now that requires monkeys. And second of all, we actually import thousands of monkeys a year from China, uh, which has these large monkey breeding farms. And China has stopped doing that since the pandemic has started. So um, some of the like, biomedical research organizations are just having a hard time, like literally finding enough monkeys to do their experiments on. Wow. Uh, That's the kind of thing I wouldn't have predicted, you know, in a disaster scenario would be one of our shortage points. Yeah, it's interesting. If you go back a couple of years, um, the National Institutes of Health was like studying like its monkey populations. And one of the things that was discussed is whether we should have a, quote, uh, strategic monkey reserve for this exact scenario where we have a new disease outbreak and we suddenly need a bunch of monkeys to test a virus on. Like we have like X tens of thousands of ventilators and... X million doses of the flu shot and also a thousand monkeys hanging out waiting. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like this is maybe part of our pandemic preparedness. How many monkeys short are we? Like three or a thousand or... (gasps) Well, so to give some context, the U.S. last year imported about 35,000 monkeys. 35,000? Yes. And 60% of those came from China and no monkeys are coming from China anymore. It's kind of introducing a bottleneck where you have lots and lots of vaccine candidates out there and like only a few are going to make it all the way through, right? So like maybe there are promising approaches that we are not taking because it's a smaller company and they can't like fight with the larger ones to get access to resources. Um, I feel so, I'm having like a total jumble of emotions because it, it's obviously kind of horrifying. Yeah. I'm sure the process of researching on monkeys is, you know, horrific in ways that I would be deeply uncomfortable with if I knew the details. But also the fact that this whole process, this global emergency could be held up by just a lack of being able to to import monkeys is, I don't know. I mean, it is it's weird to talk about monkeys as a resource, like the way like flu shots are gross. Exactly. Really, really yeah. Gross. No. I. Yeah. I, yeah. I acknowledge it's like a weird tension. Um, I think acknowledging that, like thinking about animal research, is really uncomfortable. I think the alternative is probably also uncomfortable if we think really hard about it, which is that you have a untested vaccine or untested drug, and you right. have to test right. it in people. And like, who are you going to test it in? It's probably people who and it is informed consent. Like, how possible is it with so many unknowns? And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, who is going to sign up for something like that? Or is it people who are already vulnerable um, and like right, need right, money? Right, right, right. Yeah, right. 
We talked about this with um, challenge trials and mm-hmm. how much people would or would not be paid for yeah, that. Yeah, because exactly. if you compensate greatly, then people f- are sort of co- coerced into it who need the money. And if you don't compensate well, then it, it seems like people are asked to take a, a big risk for nothing. So, so in terms of things that may delay early November as a time, I mean, is it primarily a resources question or is it a data question? I think it is mostly a data question right now. It is just a matter of a waiting game. And, and we don't know how effective these vaccines will be. Once you are giving a vaccine to thousands of people and then eventually millions of people, you are going to have really, really rare side effects that you're going to find that you didn't find with like 10 people. So kind of case in point, one of the big vaccine trials was halted this week because of a serious adverse event in one person. Um, We don't know exactly what happened yet. We don't know the details. And more importantly, we don't really know if this was actually related to the vaccine. Uh, But now the trial is kind of on hold so that scientists can kind of figure out exactly what happened. That's kind of just an example of exactly how the system is supposed to work. Um, We have to go through these trials so that we know these vaccines are safe effective and we should expect that some of them probably aren't because that's why we have to run the trial there's always this trade-off between like speed and i don't want to say safety like speed and like knowing the full map of risks that we have speed uncertainty yeah speed uncertainty yeah um we're not the only ones working on vaccines obviously they're like many many countries are Mm -hmm. are trying how are we doing in comparison to other countries and is it likely that another country will kind of get enough data before us? And if that happens, are we going to get access to that? Or will they share that? Or are we only dealing with the research that's being done here? So I think two of the biggest vaccines that are in trials right now are like the trials are being done in the U.S. So I, you know, the U.S. is not behind in other countries anyway. The countries that have proven vaccines, like Russia and China, have done it on like very, very little data. So the answer is I don't know. I think we'll have to see what it looks like. Um, one kind of ironic thing about doing trials in the U.S. is that it's easier to do trials if there's a lot of COVID spreading around. And unfortunately, we have a lot more COVID than, say, Europe right now. Right, right. Um, so in some ways, the U.S. is a good place to do trials. That's so kind of like perverse and ironic to think about it that way. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what will happen when... You know, there, there are these various collaborations that, um, international collaborations that various groups have put together. The U.S. has not exactly been enthusiastic about joining them. There's a lot of precedent in the past, for example, in the 2009 swine flu that countries kind of, you know, vaccinated their own citizens before push it out to other countries. Um, sure. So I think this whole vaccine nationalism which is the term that people now call it, is maybe also like tied to what we were talking about earlier with monkeys, which is like, is not having monkey research in the U.S. like a strategic problem in a pandemic like this. And it, it feels like weird to think about it that way, but the pandemic has had this way of like making borders suddenly and like very salient in the way that they weren't, uh, you know, 12 months ago. Right. Um, Would you take the vaccine if it came to the market in November? I think this is the way I think about it is like as a young, healthy person, I should not be in the front of the line. So I should Okay, not that's kind of you, but just in terms of trusting the process right now based on the information. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it depends on the data that we see for that vaccine. Yeah. Um, right now, I don't feel like I am so at risk. It's like it's a, it's like a risk cost benefit analysis, right? Like right now, I feel like. I don't feel so at risk for COVID that like I want to take a new risk, but maybe if I felt differently, I would, I would take the vaccine. Sure. 
that's a great answer that these are these are um going to be contingent on a person's risk factors too that if you're able to kind of shelter in place indefinitely and you live out in the woods then maybe there's just less need for you to take any yeah, risk exactly. at all. Well, that'll be fascinating and we'll yeah, give a us lot more to discuss here. More to, to more to talk about. Um thank you Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, nice thanks so much. This is really helpful. Talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you. Bye. Bye. All right. That's the vaccine news. There's a, one other way. Yeah. Yeah, as so, you said many times, there's the third way. No. We think either <laughs> no, no, this isn't part of my third way branding exercise. This how is many way, how many a ways different are usage of the word way. Um, when I f- express my concern about information coming from the federal government and that the time around the election will involve a lot of grandstanding and declaring mission accomplished and downplaying mm-hmm. risk, I mean, even more mm-hmm. so than has been going on for the last eight months, mm-hmm. um, one way is by saying, as we talked about last week, that herd immunity is right around the corner and we're basically there. Um, which we talked about being false. Um, right. And then with the vaccine, about saying, you know, the vaccine is basically here. We have one when, you know, um, that's a, a very big difference from actually having a usable one widely distributed. Right. And right. then uh, the third way is kind of, you know, saying that the numbers are good and the virus is kind of gone and um, that we have great tests that are available everywhere. And so mm-hmm. we'll be able to reopen the economies on the way up. We did a great job here. Mm-hmm. So testing is kind of the third open question of that little formula. Yes. So we, I've been wanting to talk about testing for a while because we haven't checked in on it in a while. And also it seems like there are a lot of scientific developments with testing that um, I don't totally uh, I, I would like to know more about. We, you know, I've gotten tested before in New York where tests are available for everyone, um, no matter your sort of situation or whether you have symptoms or not. But I've found leaving New York that that situation is quite unusual. And how long did it take you to get your results? It took me over a week. Mm-hmm. So, which has obviously rendered it useless. So, I mean, I know that the way we're doing it now is just not helpful. Um, those were caused because of lab backups. But I've started to hear a lot about rapid tests, which is like the kind they're using at the White House, for instance. Anyone who meets with the president is tested before they come in and they get the result right there. So it seems like some some institutions have access to these rapid tests, but it's not something that you can go to your doctor to get necessarily. Um, right. So... I want to understand rapid testing and I and we should call Alexis for this because he's been following this and I think he thinks that this could be not just a way to get test results faster but fundamentally change how we are responding to the pandemic. Yeah. I mean if there was like a breathalyzer sort of test, you know. Right, right. Just results right there. Go on your way versus we got to, you know, you seem like you were drunk driving. We got to lock you up for two weeks and then we'll get a result and we'll know. Right, right. I mean, the the way we've tried to do this is temperature checks, you know, but those are those don't actually correlate with contagiousness for this virus. So what if you could do an actual test for anyone entering a space? Mm -hmm. So let's give Alexis Madrigal a call. Okay, so Alexis, I told Jim about our run-in. Oh, yeah. Slightly embarrassing to be, like, sweating in a tank top and run into your colleague. However, 
it was fine. Well, (laughs) embarrassing for me because I was like 10 paces up a hill and was already taking a water break. And you were like, just shoot speeding past, like at a pace I've never seen someone run uphill. And so, (laughs) you know, we both, we both had. Yeah, we both both had our moment. Yeah. yeah, but I I think overall it was a positive experience. Yeah. Anyway, now that we are not on a hiking trail, um, we've been hearing that, yes, of course, the vaccine is a way out, but the vaccine's not coming like anytime soon in a widespread way, regardless of how fast we can get it done. Testing is the third option. Testing is the middle option. It's the way we can manage this situation until there is a vaccine. Now, is that true? Would testing allow us to get this under control? It is the thing that I can imagine doing that. Uh, it, <laughs> whether or not that happens is a slightly different thing. However, in the good scenario for testing, it is something that can help a lot. Probably isn't going to be enough all on its own but it could help a lot. I mean, the, the other way would be therapeutics of different kinds, of course, which right, I right, would right. let Jim deal with. But, um, but I think testing is going to be a big part of it, uh, of any way back to normalcy. Okay. Well, let's start with the optimistic scenario. I can tell you that I got tested and it took me eight days to get a result, rendering the whole thing useless if I had actually been sick and asymptomatically spreading. So how can testing help if it takes so long? Right. Well, what people are trying to develop right now are faster tests, something on the order of a few minutes, inexpensive paper strip type test, more like a pregnancy test. Hmm. Um, and it would sort of decentralize testing radically. So you wouldn't have to go to a testing center. You would just be able to, you know, buy these things at retail or maybe go to a testing kiosk. Is this like you just spit on a paper strip and it turns a color? Yeah. And... Or you swab your nose with like a Q-tip style, not uh-huh. like a back of the, you know, eyeball style. Yeah. And yeah. you put it in some sort of solution, but something easy. So, you know, it's an easy test, it's a fast test, and it's a it's a cheap test. So instead of costing from 10 to say $150, it costs from two to $10. Are people already using prototypes of, of this sort of testing? Is this what they have at the White House? Uh, such tests exist in some places. Um, so Abbott quite famously say they're going to produce 50 million of these tests in the month of October. And... There are a variety of other companies that are also working on on similar things. What the White House has been using primarily and other places are a similar test, but different kind of machinery. So instead of a little paper strip, instead there's like a little desktop machine um, and you have a little, you know, testing pod that you use and put into the machine. Uh, the people have been calling them point of care tests. Um, and what's interesting about those is there should be millions and millions of those tests being done per month, but we're not really seeing them in our work with the COVID tracking project. Like we, these tests that we're talking about here, instead of trying to find direct evidence of the genome of the virus, um, they instead are looking at proteins that the virus produces called antigens. And so they are looking for these antigens instead of for the RNA. They are faster, but they're also 
two things that are bad. <laughs> uh, they're less sensitive, which means, you know, mm. it's, you're less likely to catch every positive, everybody who's positive. They're also less specific, which means that if you really deployed them at scale, you'd be likely to actually create a lot of false positives. So both things are actually problems, and there's actually different camps uh, of people who are worried more about one or more about the other. Well, that's what you want out of a screening test, though, is you don't mind some false positives. You could send people to go get PCR if they're positive on this test, um, and theoretically that would just be efficient. But it's the false negatives that can render a screening test actually worse than nothing. This had been my thought about it. Really interestingly, some of the major proponents of the test are the ones most worried about the false positives. Hmm. Um, One lab director said to me, you have to apply like uh, antibody math to this, right? So for example, let's say, and because the numbers are supposed to be so huge. So let's say you're doing a million tests a day with these, which is really what Abbott is promising very soon to be able to at least have the capacity to do. You could be generating close to as many false positives as total positives right now on PCR tests. Okay. So that's a lot. Yeah. Right? Right? right. And it's just because the scale of it is so enormous, particularly if they're deployed in very low prevalence areas where there's really not a ton of virus, then a lot of the positives you get are going to be false positives. And people are worried that that may snarl the various testing systems. And also, people might lose faith in using these tests if they think like, oh, well, the chance of false positives is so high. Like, maybe I'm not, I don't feel sick. I'm going to go to work anyway. Right, right. So I know what the world looks like right now with somewhat limited and sporadic testing with test results that can take anywhere from, you know, a day to two weeks. What would the world look like if we were doing a million rapid tests a day with an uncertain number of false positives? And an uncertain number of false negatives, like Jim was saying. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I I think the the mega happy scenario would be that in that big dragnet of screening, you would catch enough contagious people that you would start to really bring down the rate of transmission. Like, one of the things that I've been thinking about just, you know, watching these numbers all the time is that, you know, with our current set of strategies, we, we tend to do a pretty good job at bringing the rate of transmission down to like around one. And by one, we mean the average number that someone is passing it on to another Exactly, person. So exactly. Like right now we're around like each person passes it to one other person. Exactly. So we can't really get to true like suppressing the virus and get back to normal life. But we're also, most places are not actually also seeing, you know, huge runaway outbreaks. And when places do do a lot of the things that, you know, every public health person says to do, you know, mask, wash your hands, social distance, avoid large state gatherings, and, you know, all these no things. singing. And no, no singing. Or t- yeah, exactly. All that stuff appears to get us down to like, you know, around one. And so we're kind of balanced on this sort of knife edge where, you know, we, we've had a pretty hard time like getting to suppression in the way that Asian countries have but we're also not you know, getting torched all the time. And so what I would hope testing would do in the happy scenario is be the thing that helps us start to drive like way lower than one. Right. But would that look like I wake up every morning and I like test myself? I mean, yeah, how, I mean it, how does it work? Yeah, I think the way that it would like start to roll out first and the way that it almost 
certainly will with the Abbott test that's called Binax now, their kind of first very simple test. I think it's going to be workplaces and schools. You know, these are tests that could be done by a school nurse. I think that mm-hmm. it's kind of unclear whether they're going to be rolled out straight up for screening. You know, like you'll just you know, go into the Ford plant and once a week you'll do this test. Yeah. I think one of the things that happened was, uh, you're talking with one of my sources and he was like, you know, we've been peddling testing strategies for months and without the ability to do lots of tests, no one cared. And now suddenly there's this idea that maybe there's going to be all these tests available. And now people are kind of scrambling to put together strategies for this. But the, the kind of strategy that strikes me is most likely is some kind of regular testing and testing within groups that sort of make sense to test together. Um, mm-hmm. And that these strategies, which are, have kind of been on the shelf, will kind of get rapidly developed primarily, I think, by companies. Nursing homes are already supposed to be doing some of this kind of testing, high-risk workplaces, uh, emergency responders, and on all those kinds of groups. If that starts to work, if you get a, suddenly there's tons of tests like this, I do think that we will get very used to, the, 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 in the happy scenario, you will take a test a lot like more than once a week, like a lot of the modeling that um, people have done. It's like, you need to get to subweekly testing before it's an actually... For every person in the country? For for everybody. Yeah. Right. So we need not... So a million tests a month is not going to cut it. Well, they're talking talking 50 million tests a month, but that's just one company. So, but yeah, you'd be talking, I mean, tests in the billions. I mean, this is why, you know, Michael... Billions of tests a month. Billions of tests a month. Yeah. And how many tests are we doing? Just for comparison, how many tests are we doing a month right now? We've never gotten to 25 million PCR tests in a month. Okay. So we're talking about a large. <laughs> yeah. So other people are like, how about millions of tests? And then Alexis comes in. Uh, and <laughs> you know what's says, cool? How about, billions. You know, billions of tests. <laughs> um, but in this race to do way, way more tests, we don't want to sacrifice uh, accuracy and integrity for speed, for volume. Is there any way that we could get to this scale with the more accurate, uncomfortable nose swab test, the PCR test that you send off to a lab? I think basically no. There's I mean, no way we could what, ever get billions no, of tests I mean, a month of those. The, the supply chains for all that stuff, I mean, you've probably heard people talk about We've discussed the pipette you know, tips and yeah. whatnot. Yes, the pipette tips and the, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, it, they really started to break down at the end of July during the Sunbelt surge. And in fact, you know, testing, let me pull the number up really quick. Um, I mean, testing peaked back uh, on July 29th, and we are now doing, you know, more than 100,000 fewer tests on average per day now than we were then. And, you know, there's also, you know, it's a global market mm-hmm. and, you know, Europe looks like it's heating up again. And so we kind of tapped out PCR tests. This is going to be the way that we're going to get to more tests and certainly, um, you know, more accessible and, and faster tests. Rap- m- faster, cheaper, more accessible, less vulnerable to supply chain issues. That's the exactly. whole idea that's so that the, we can all have more information more regularly um and just that and- they're they're useful you know i mean i think one of the things that people really realized about the testing system that the u.s built during the crisis response phase was that it was more or less useless for contact tracing you know right. if you're not getting results back for days and days um the 
by, by the time you get the result back and they go send contact tracers out, it's like, it's too late. Those You've already infected everyone you would have infected and it ended up being downright wasteful to do contact tracing. And when right. you look at the US, it's we just have not had a lot of success um, with those strategies. No, I mean, we keep, <laughs> every, every month there's a new strategy that's going right. to fix everything. And then it breaks down because of basically a lack of federal coordination and failures in all sorts of maybe expected ways. We're just like pushing these good ideas and these technologies through, you know, a flailing administrative state and through a federal healthcare and public health system that wasn't really designed to do this. And so it's kind of like even the stuff we do well, like technological development is now coming up against bureaucratic and I mean bureaucratic actually in a positive sense here, the like bureaucratic nodes and networks necessary to actually get something like this implemented. And of course, now we also have the election, which is just adding this, you know, this layer of fuzz around absolutely every single thing um, mm-hmm. that's happening. I feel like I talked to you a couple of weeks ago and you were, you sounded excited and extremely optimistic about testing being a way that we could get some semblance of normal normalcy back. What happened? I'm not not excited about it. I, I, I am excited about it. It's just we are now reaching this stage of kind of implementation where you, it's like, well, we're either going to have these, you know, 10 million tests in September and 50 million tests in October, or we're not. And we need to see if that happens. The other thing that has given me some pause is that we, we know these two companies have produced millions and millions of these antigen tests, the point of care tests, the kind of desktop machine style. And yet we're not seeing them show up in our data. And so it worries me for a couple of reasons. If their tests are being done and the results aren't being reported, that's bad, but it'd be fine, sort of. Mm-hmm. What's, what's worse would be if those tests aren't even being used because in practice, doing these kinds of tests has not turned out to be something that behaviorally or psychologically people decide it's something they want to do. You know, the government bought a bunch of these kinds of tests and sent them out to nursing homes. And it was kind of one of the major things that CMS and Health and Human Services have done to protect these nursing homes, right? But if we're not seeing any of those tests show up, if CMS and HHS don't know how many of those tests have actually been completed, it just, all these kinds of tests have these kind of ideas about how people will behave with them. You know, there's this kind of, yeah. And, and what if it turns out that people actually don't want to take a less accurate test, even if at a population level, that would be one of the smartest things we could do to slow the spread. Instead, what if people just only want to get PCR testing, even if their individual results take longer or whatever. So we're at the time where we need to see if this actually works. And it's not just about, you know, saying, Hey, this idea exists. And if we dedicate time, attention, and resources to it, it's possible it could be developed into something that would be a great tool. Now it's like, okay, the tool is very close at hand. We need to actually use it and see what happens. And of course, that's like when you really start to see all the warts and problems. And, and that's the stage we're in right now with this. Yeah. So the test is not showing up in your data. That means it's not being done. That's the question. I mean, it this could is, be under the radar here, in which case 
either way, you'd really uh, a large part of the value of this sort of test is the centralization of a repository of data, so you can localize outbreaks and better understand how the virus spreads and better understand what the test is missing and what the test is over-testing or creating false positives for. And if you don't quickly get on collecting all of that that data, then the test loses a lot of its... Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. And at that point, if the public health authorities are not getting a hold of any of this data so that they can respond in that way, you're putting all of the weight of this kind of plan working onto individual people deciding to make the right decisions, which would be an extremely American attempt, (laughs) Uh, but is, is also probably not the best way of rolling this out. I mean, the good news is we should The cult of individualism fails us once again. Yes, once again. We should know a lot in a month. I think in a a month and and particularly by the middle of October, we should be seeing these show up somewhere in our data. And right now, Rob Meyer, another Atlantic staff writer, and I are working on a story about the data hole that we're seeing right now with antigen testing. And hopefully over the next couple of weeks, that will either be filled in or it'll be explained in some way. Right now, it's just kind of a big mystery. Hmm. Okay. Can we call you back in a couple of weeks? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, hopefully then I'll be like chipper and like, yeah. Yeah. If you could testing. please arrange for a, a more optimistic uh, presentation of this, that would be great. I'll do my best. <laughs> no, no. Thank you. This is really helpful. And uh, I really do. I mean, this this does seem like... If we can get this together, this would be really helpful. Yeah. Yes. All right. All right. Look forward to our next uh, chat. Thanks so much, Alexis. Bye. Thank you. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye, y'all. This show was produced today by Kevin Townsend. Write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com or call us at 202-642-6487 and leave a voicemail. This episode was actually partly inspired by a voicemail question that we got about uh, should I get regular testing, so we really appreciate that insight. If you like the show and want to access all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com forward slash support us. That was really good. I like how you always say forward slash, just to clarify in case anyone in the world is still using a backslash. I, (laughs) the way I perceive text is weird, so I have to, that is important for me. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Jim. Until next week. See ya. Okay, bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.